0: Welcome to The S Factor Science. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting edition of The S Factor. I'm your host Chuck Shazer of scienceanimated.net. It's a pleasure for me to bring a new show to you today for October 2nd. 2021. The S yes Factor is all about science, and I want to welcome you aboard my starship as we travel around the solar system, go into interstellar space a little bit, talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S Factor. You can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on this great radio station, Cruising 92.1 WVLT, and you can catch all my past shows on your favorite podcasting service by just searching for me, typing in The S-Factor Podcast, and I will pop right up. You can see all the past shows. By the way, this is the month of Halloween. And if you want to learn about the science of ghosts, I covered that last year in October of 2020. So if you want to check that out in the archives, check out scienceanimated.net, or you can go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Amazon Prime Podcast. My podcast is all over the place, so be sure to check that out. So many things going on in the world of science as usual. Let's dig right into it. Jupiter's Great Red Spot is not only shrinking, its winds are also speeding up. A decade of Jovian storm chasing paid off for the Hubble Space Telescope. The long-running telescope that has been studying the Great Red Spot a major storm on Jupiter that is shrinking for mysterious reasons. Alongside that, researchers just uncovered huge changes in wind speeds within the massive storm. Jupiter takes 12 Earth years to orbit the Sun. During the Jovian year between 2009 and 2020, Hubble found wind speeds in the outer ring of the Great Red Spot increased by up to 8%. While the wind speed varied depending on when Hubble was looking at the storm, the telescope did track long-term increases in the rotation speed of the outer ring. And Jupiter, as I've talked about before on the S-Factor, is like our great guardian in the solar system. It blocks so many asteroids and meteorites from colliding with Earth. It's unbelievable. As a matter of fact, Jupiter's great red spot is so large, I believe it is larger or the same size as Earth. Could you imagine? A typical outer ring wind speed today can easily exceed 100 meters per second, which is 223 miles per hour. While a decade ago, the range often went into the low 90s of meters per second, roughly 200 miles per hour. Now, the storm is larger than planet Earth. We're just talking about that. And astronomers have been observing it regularly for more than 150 years, with occasional other observations as early as the 1600s. So we've had our eye on this red spot on Jupiter for a long time, hundreds of years. Now, we've been observing it for so long, we've seen the evidence of change over a relatively long time. The storm speeds are incredible compared to what we see on Earth, but the typical increase was less than 1.6 miles per hour per Earth year. When I initially saw the results, I asked, does this make sense? No one has ever seen this before. Lead author Michael Wong, a planetary scientist at the University of California, Berkeley, said in a statement. But Wong and other researchers said that Hubble Space Telescope's precision and long-running records of observations allowed ample confirmation alongside a software data analysis that tracked tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of wind vectors, directions and speeds during Jupiter observations. The researchers are struggling to understand why the increase is happening, as Hubble cannot peer into the depths of the storm. Anything below the cloud tops is invisible in the data, Wong said, but it's an interesting piece of data that can help us understand what's fueling the Great Red Spot and how it's maintaining energy. NASA currently is running the Juno mission at Jupiter and has on occasion looked at the Great Red Spot, but the press release did not say if observations from this mission could assist in figuring out the windy mystery. Juno has already worked in tandem with Hubble and the Gemini Observatory in Hawaii to chart atmospheric and storm conditions on the giant planet. Jupiter also peered deep into the Great Red Spot to chart the depths of the storm. I would have to say Jupiter is my favorite planet just its size its colossal size and how it protects us it makes it a very important planet now here's a little food for thought as far as jupiter's concerned jupiter has a radius of forty-three thousand four hundred forty miles isn't that incredible <laughs> jupiter is 11 times wider than earth 11 times i think it's hard for us to even visualize such a thing If Earth were the size of a nickel, Jupiter would be about as big as a basketball. From an average distance of 484 million miles, Jupiter is 5.2 astronomical units away from the Sun. So we have some facts there on our giant planet in the solar system, Jupiter. Very cool story. And you know, we have wind speeds, you know, we have hurricane season, or actually we're still in hurricane season here, but... It's really incredible to think about. We started checking that out in the 1600s, and can you imagine a storm that goes on that long? So, very cool story there by Live Science, Jupiter's Great Red Spot. I remember years ago talking to someone that would tell me that when they brush their teeth, they would brush their tongue. But do you need to do that? Should you brush your tongue? Well, now according to Dental Journal... Oral hygiene, why neglect the tongue? Eastern and Oriental cultures have practiced tongue cleaning for centuries. Old records refer to scraping your tongue as part of the 3,000-year-old medicine system in India, where it remains a regular part of the regimen today. Traditional Chinese medicine uses the tongue's appearance as an indicator of overall health, like a diagnostic tool to understand the root cause of a condition. Oral hygiene, a history of tongue scraping and brushing, states that implements have been made from materials such as thin strips of wood, whale bone, and various metals for oral and tongue cleanliness. A recent CDC report states 47.2% of adults aged 30 years and older have some form of periodontal disease. Although tongue hygiene hasn't been researched as extensively as gums and teeth, There is a growing body of information to help you decide whether tongue brushing is worth incorporating into your daily oral routine. How many of you guys out there do that? Recent images of the microbes coating the tongue have been captured. Spectral imaging was used to investigate the organization of around 20 billion microbes that live on the tongue. The report aims to extend our knowledge of the crucial relationship we have with the oral microbiome living symbiotically within us. Now, these organisms form complex communities, creating biofilms on the tongue as well as on teeth and gums. Biofilms offer an important ecosystem for bacteria, and some of these microbes benefit us. But others can grow out of balance, creating thick, sticky coatings. According to the role of dental plaque, biofilm, and oral health, the nature of the oral biofilm creates a defense to protect itself. And if not removed regularly, it reaches maturation and can become problematic, causing dental cavities decay, gingivitis, and, and periodontitis. The tongue has a rough surface with various types of papillae that are raised bumps we can feel. Food debris, bacteria, fungi, and dead cells can reside within these crevices. It is understandable why mouthwashes alone may not be enough to remove buildup on the tongue. This is why brushing makes sense, Helps help, helping to dislodge and remove oral debris. Now, oral health expert Louise Langdon at the Oral Health Foundation told Live Science, a healthy mouth generally will have a pink tongue. We don't want to see any inflammation. Usually anything that is red or white or standing out is a sign that there's something there that needs looking into. Langdon added, our tongues are always going to look different depending on whether you're a smoker, have medical conditions, or have a dry mouth. Langdon suggested that tongue cleaning is a good part of an oral hygiene routine. Most would use their own toothbrush. Some brushes will have a nobbled effect on the back of the toothbrush, depending on the manufacturer. You know, that's very interesting because my toothbrush, I do have a knobby back on, you know, like under the bristles. I never knew that's what that was for. I just learned something myself here. Also, advice was given not to brush or scrape the tongue aggressively as it might become dry and sore as it was recommended to clean once per day. Now, regular tongue brushing or scraping followed by rinsing could reduce the buildup of problematic bacteria that lead to oral health problems. Other factors such as diet, water intake, and lifestyle also play crucial roles in the oral microbiome in its healthy function. Perspective is shifting towards how we can further support beneficial microbes within our oral ecosystem. Using interventions such as probiotics, and herbal mouthwashes. So there you have it. It sounds like we should actually brush our tongue when we brush our teeth. Seems rather important. We're going to take a quick timeout. You are listening to The S Factor with your host, Chuck Schaeser. This show is all about science, and you can and you can check me out here the first Saturday of every month on cruising 92.1 WVLT and on your favorite podcasting service. Just type in The S Factor, and you'll find me there. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Yes Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Chaser. This show is all about science. Welcome aboard my starship as we've been traveling around the solar system. So welcome aboard. We're having some fun here talking about all things science like we do every month, the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock on Cruising 92.1 WVLT in your favorite podcasting service. Let's get right back to the science news. This according to National Geographic, Planet 9 may be closer and easier to find than thought if it exists. Planet Nine has been in the news quite a bit recently. I remember learning about Nibiru. Do we have any uh, Zacharias Hitchin people out there, people that that are familiar with it? It doesn't mean you believe it, but that you're familiar with the ancient Sumerian Sanskrit text. They talk about Nibiru, which was a planet that would pass Earth, and when it passed Earth, You know, catastrophe happened, things like that. You know, all those old texts are very interesting to learn and to read about. Again, doesn't necessarily mean that stuff is factual, but I think it's pretty interesting to read about. And they will talk about this planet nine. Well, in the recent years here, I'd say within the last two, two years, There has been talk of, you know, maybe there actually is a Planet Nine. So let's go on and see what National Geographic has to say about Planet Nine here. Among the solar system's more intriguing mysteries is whether a large icy planet lives in the outer regions of our cosmic neighborhood, well beyond the orbit of Neptune. This hypothetical world, nicknamed Planet Nine by some of the scientists searching for it, has stirred up controversy since it was first proposed. The unseen planet is predicted to exist based on its apparent gravitational influence on a group of small objects with odd clustered orbits. But so far, searches for it have come up empty, and critics contend that the hints of its presence are just ghosts in the data. Now, a new analysis predicts if it's out there, that skulking planet could be closer, brighter, and easier to spot than previously estimated. Instead of orbiting our home star once every... 18,500 years, astronomers calculate that it loops around the sun in about 7,400 years. That tighter orbit brings it much closer to the sun than previously expected, which means that Planet 9 may appear brighter to Earth-based telescopes. I think it's within a year or two from being found, says Mike Brown, of an astronomer at the California Institute of Technology and an author of the new study, which has been accepted for publication in the Astronomical Journal. But he adds, I've made that statement every year for the past five years. I'm super optimistic. Brown's latest analysis of Planet Nine's gravitational shenanigans calculated with his Caltech colleague, suggests suggest that the world is roughly six times as massive as Earth, which would likely make it either a rocker, rocky super-Earth or a gaseous mini-Neptune. If discovered, the planet would be the first large world to jo- join the solar system cast of characters since 1846, when astronomers announced the discovery of Neptune, an ice giant whose presence was forecast by its gravitational influence on Uranus. But over the years, skeptics have suggested that the gravitational signatures betraying Planet Nine's presence are nothing more than observational artifacts. The apparent clustering of distant objects orbits doesn't reflect the influence of an unforeseen world, critics argue, and is instead the result of natural biases in sky surveys. Most of these objects are discovered with large telescopes that have limited time for surveys of the outer solar system, and they look in the places they can look, which depends on where they are located says Renu Malhotra of the University of Arizona, who is agnostic about the planet's existence and is working on her own estimates of its position. Astronomers have so far discovered only a handful of these distant objects, and without a more complete census of the outer solar system, it's tough to tell whether these small icy objects are truly behaving strangely or are randomly distributed. For more than a century, astronomers have mused about such a planet erroneously believing that something hefty was perturbing Neptune's orbit. Astronomer Percival Lowe called the world Planet X and was so intent on finding it that he left a million dollars to fund the continuing search after his death in 1916. In 1930, the Lowe Observatory's Cloud Tomba found Pluto instead. Didn't find Planet X, but they found Pluto. The Caltech team based their prediction of Planet 9's existence on how it apparently perturbs a group of Kepler Belt Objects, or KBOs. These small icy worlds beyond Neptune include a population of objects with extreme orbits that take them at least 150 times further from the Sun than Earth's orbit. The team concluded that an unseen planet about 10 times as massive as Earth must be gravitationally shepherding the objects to their Kanawapus trajectories. The planet's estimated mass sits between Earth and Neptune, making it a type of world that appears to be common throughout the galaxy based on surveys of planets orbiting other stars, yet is conspicuously absent in our own solar system. Perhaps Planet 9 is an apparition, its supposed gravitational handiwork, a false signature created by a small number of misleading data points. Astronomers are still working on resolving the controversy, and this latest analysis from Brown and Battyon is one attempt to do just that. So they are still gathering data to figure out if Planet 9 is out there and exists. Although it's now estimated to be smaller, roughly five or six times Earth's mass rather than ten, the planet is also apparently closer. This means Planet 9 should be brighter in the sky. Although one researcher points out that the planet's estimated brightness is based on assumptions about its composition, which could be wrong. The fact that scientists haven't yet set eyes on Planet 9 could suggest that if it exists, the world is positioned near the farthest reaches of its orbit making it a faint, slowly moving target that's hiding in starlight. Now researchers are using the powerful Subaru telescope situated atop Hawaii's Mauna Kea to hunt for the elusive planet. But even with the sharpest tools in an astronomer's arsenal, the search is challenging. As it's surmised, brightness and orbit, Planet 9 inconveniently blends into the glittering masses of background stars, a world adrift amid the milky streamer of her galaxy in the nighttime sky. It's bright enough and close enough and prominent enough that that's basically the only region where it could lurk undetected. Now, sifting through star fields using Subaru isn't the only way astronomers could pin the planet on the sky. NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, otherwise also known as TESS, is busy searching for planets orbiting other stars. Now, that may catch sight of Planet 9 as it scans areas that include the planets supposed to orbit. Now, one astronomer says, I would be willing to bet, and I often lose bets, that images of it exist in surveys that we already have. I don't think anything has been discovered that was not later found in existing data, starting with Uranus all the way to Pluto and Eris. Eris was discovered at the Palomar Observatory in 2005, and they found that the earliest image of it was on a photographic plate made by the same telescope in 1955. And they say, just have a feeling it's going to happen again. So check that out. A photographic plate made by That telescope in 1955, but they didn't see it until 2005. And we're talking about the dwarf planet Eris. So they think that could happen here with Planet 9, what some people call Planet X, what Zachariah Sitchin called Nibiru. Could this thing exist? I don't know. They're working on it. This isn't the first I've heard of of researchers, astronomers, talking about the potential for Planet 9. So we'll see what happens here. Very interesting story there. That would be huge news in the scientific community if we find and have absolute evidence for Planet Nine. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more science news right here on The S-Factor with your host Chuck Shazer. You can check me out at scienceanimated.net and you can always check me out on your favorite podcasting service. Just type in The S-Factor. We will be right back. Tune. Welcome back to The S Factor. I'm your host Chuck Shazer. This show is all about science and if this is your first time joining me, welcome. You can check all the past S Factor shows. We've gone through so many topics, so many cool topics over the last almost two years now. You can check out the archives at scienceanimated.net or your favorite podcasting service, just type in the S-Factor and you'll see me there. Give me a like, give me a share, give me a star rating. I appreciate that very much. And by the way, check out scienceanimated.net for Science Animated to Human Body. Christmas is right around the corner, folks. It's going quick this year. The year is marching on. So if you want to get a present that is educational, exciting, something that the kids aren't going to have to drag their feet through to watch, this is something that children across the United States of America have enjoyed. I've gotten letters from people coast to coast Their kids can't stop watching this thing. It's only $9.99 if you want the stream, $16.99 if you want the DVD. It's available at scienceanimated.net. Get your copy today. Next story is from Space.com. Mars was always too small to hold on to its oceans, rivers, and lakes. Mars was doomed by its small size, a new study suggests. Thanks to observations by robotic explorers such as NASA's Curiosity and Perseverance rovers, Scientists know that in the ancient past, liquid water coursed through the Martian surface. The Red Planet once hosted lakes, rivers, and streams, and possibly even a huge ocean that covered much of its northern hemisphere. But that surface water was pretty much all gone by about 3.5 billion years ago, lost to space along with much of the Martian atmosphere. This dramatic climate shift occurred after the Red Planet lost its global magnetic field, which had protected Mars' air from being stripped away by charged particles streaming from the sun, scientists believe. Now, you know, sometimes I'll hear the criticism from different people out there that why are we worried about Mars so much? Why are we worried about these other planets so much, period? Why do we invest so much money into NASA and space exploration? Well, the reason is simple. We don't want that to happen here. If we can understand what happened to Mars... Maybe we'll have an opportunity to prevent that from happening on Earth. Now, remember, the sun has been quite active as of late. We've had some solar flares coming our way. Now, the thing is, our magnetic field protects us. The magnetic field is very important. and It is very important for us to understand what happened to Mars. It's the closest thing to Earth that we have in the solar system, and there are clues there. And, you know, when we invest all this money, really we're investing in humanity's future. Because if we don't know what happened to the planet, how in the world could we ever prevent, if there's even a way possible to prevent something like that? Or maybe it'll kick us in the keister and we'll say, hey, you know what, maybe we should get more serious about expanding out into the solar system, setting up colonies on the moon, Mars, wherever else. Remember, Stephen Hawking said that humans should start expanding into our solar system, start colonizing our solar system. Why? Why did he say that? Because Earth has been relatively calm, and it that has enabled us as human beings to get to where we are today. As far as math, science, our knowledge is because the Earth has been quiet enough for us to become curious and to gather knowledge. Now, what this new study says is that Mars is just too small to hold on to its surface water over the long haul. Now, Mars' fate was decided from the very beginning, study co-author Kung Wang, an assistant professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis, said in a statement, There is likely a threshold on the size requirements of rocky planets to retain water, to retain enough water to enable habitability and plate tectonics. That threshold is larger than Mars, the scientists believe. The study team, led by Zen Tian, a grad student in Wang's lab, examined 20 Mars meteorites, which they selected to be representative of the planet's bulk composition. The researchers measured the abundance of various isotopes of potassium in these extraterrestrial rocks, which range in an age from 200 million years to 4 billion years. Now, the isotopes are versions of an element that contain different numbers of neutrons in their atomic nuclei. Now, Tian and her colleagues use potassium, known by the chemical symbol K, as a tracer for more volatile elements and compounds, stuff like water, which transitions to the gas phase at relatively low temperatures. They found that Mars lost significantly more volatiles during its formation than Earth, which is about nine times more massive than a red planet. But Mars held onto its volatiles better than Earth's moon and the 329 million mile-wide asteroid Vesta, both of which are smaller and drier than a red planet. Bantam planets lose lots of water during formation, and their global magnetic fields also shut down relatively early, resulting in atmospheric thinning. Now, in contrast, Earth's global magnetic field is still going strong, powered by a dynamo deep within our planet. The new work could have applications beyond our cosmic backyard, team members said. The study emphasizes that there is a very limited size range for planets that have just enough but not too much water to develop a habitable surface environment. These results will guide astronomers in their search for habitable exoplanets in other solar systems. That surface environment disclaimer is an important one. Scientists think that modern Mars still supports potentially life-supporting underground aquifers, for example, and moons such as Jupiter's Europa and Saturn's Enceladus Post huge, possibly life-supporting oceans beneath their ice-covered surfaces. So even though Mars lost its atmosphere, everything dissipated, all the water dissipated, they still believe that there there could be underground aquifers. And if that's the case, once we reach Mars, I mean, they could drill for water. So there's still a little bit that we have to, a little bit, there's still quite a bit we have to figure out about Mars before we send people. But I think it's an important step. It, for the future of humanity to do that. You know, we have a super volcano that sits under Yellowstone National Park. If that thing erupted, it would have global implications. It would be terrible for the United States. And that's just one one natural disaster that could happen. That would have a global impact. So much ash would go into the air. So these things are important. That's why science is so important. It's important to know these things. You could prepare or you can try to prevent those things from happening. One thing I like to mention during the S Factor is that since this is a pre-recorded show, even though it is a brand new show, it's pre-recorded, the best way to contact me is through email. So if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. And actually, if you go right to scienceanimated.net, you can Click on the contacts form and the navigation, and you can you know, reach reach me that way as well. Always enjoy questions and comments. Uh, if you have any, a question about any of the content that's on scienceanimated.net, including the Human Body DVD, feel free to reach out to me. Again, that DVD would be an absolutely perfect present for the youngster in your life. Seems like there are so many crazy things on television today. Well, if you want something that is family-friendly and actually interesting and will keep your attention, Science Animated the Human Body is your ticket. Available at scienceanimated.net. Have you ever thought about what it would be like if you were immortal? What would that be like? We're going to talk about that when we come back from our break. You are listening to The S-Factor, where it's all about science, with your host, Chuck Shazer. We'll be right back. Would you like to get into better shape, lose weight, have more energy, be toned, be stronger, be faster, have better endurance? Well, there's a solution. Tawny Fit certified personal trainer Tawny Basil is the owner of Tawny Fit, and having Tawny Basil as your personal trainer can help you get the results you're looking for. Now, whether you want to go to a gym with Tawny Basil and have her by your side showing you the right way to do the exercises, coming up with the perfect plan for you with your goals in mind, with your personal goals in mind, that's one way you can do it. Also, if you don't want to leave the home. You can do training virtually with Tawny Basil. She will. She has virtual sessions, so you don't have to leave the comfort of your home. And now she also has a facility where you can come to her in a little private gym and you can get your workout in that way. So contact Tawny Basil at tawnyfit at gmail.com. That's tawnyfit at gmail.com for rates. And I think you had an offer, by the way, for the S-Factor folks, didn't you? With a free session if they mention the show? Absolutely. If we you don't want to forget mention that. mention the show, you get a free session. Um, you can reach me at 609-674-8077. Text READY. That's right, folks. I'll give you that number one more time. If you want to contact Tawny Bissell, text her the message READY to 609 609- Six seven four eight zero seven seven, or email Tawny. Her email address is Tawnyfit at gmail.com. back to the S Factor where it's all about science with your host Chuck Shazer. With Halloween quickly approaching, there is a past S Factor episode that you may be interested in. It's on the science of ghosts. It was a show I recorded last October, 2020. If you just go to the podcast. If you go to Apple or Google Podcast, your favorite podcasting service, and you type in the S Factor podcast, the show will pop up and you can just scroll down and the Science of Ghosts will come up. And it was a very cool show, but if you want to listen to something that kind of put you in a Halloween spirit, the Science of Ghosts is an interesting listen. Now, there would be no need for ghosts or ghost talk if we were immortal. And that is our next topic here. Immortality. How many of you out there would like to live forever? I hear people say that they would enjoy living forever. Some people say, you know, enough is enough. It has to end at some point. How do you feel about that? Contact me. I want to know. Would you be up for immortality? Well, let's dive into that topic a little bit here. Following from Live Science... Will humans ever be immortal? If you are human, you are going to die. This isn't the most comforting thought. But death is the inevitable price we must pay for being alive. Humans are, however, getting better at pushing back our expiration date, as our medicines and technologies advance. If the human lifespan continues to stretch, we could one day become immortal. The question depends on what you think it means to be an immortal human. I don't think when people are even asking about mortality, they really mean true immortality unless they believe in something like a soul. Susan Schneider, a philosopher and founding director at the Center for the Future Mind at Florida Atlantic University, told Live Science, if someone was, say, to upgrade their brain and body to live a really long time, they would still not be able to live beyond the end of the universe. Scientists expect the universe will end, which puts an immediate damper on a mystery about the potential for human immortality. Some scientists have speculated about surviving the death of the universe, as science journalist John Horgan reported for Scientific American, but it's unlikely that any humans alive today will experience the universe's demise anyway. Now, of course, many humans grow old and die. To live indefinitely, we would need to stop the body from aging, a group of animals that may have already solved this problem, so it isn't as far-fetched as it sounds. Hydra are small jellyfish-like invertebrates with a remarkable approach to aging. They are largely made of stem cells that constantly divide to make new cells, as their older cells are discarded. The constant influx of new cells allows Hydra to rejuvenate themselves and stay forever young. They don't seem to age, so potentially they are immortal. Daniel Martinez, a biology professor at Pomona College in Claremont, California, who discovered the hydra's lack of aging, hydra show that animals do not have to grow old, but that doesn't mean humans could replicate their rejuvenating habits. At 10 millimeters long, hydra aren't, hydra are small enough and don't have organs. It's impossible for us because our bodies are super complex, Martinez said. Humans have stem cells that can repair and even grow and even regrow parts of the body. The human body is not made almost entirely of these cells, like Hydra are. That's because humans need cells to do things other than just divide and make new cells. For example, our red blood cells transport oxygen around the body. We make cells commit to a function. And in doing that, they have to lose the ability to divide. As the cells age, so do we. We can't simply discard our old cells like Hydra do, because we need them. For example, the neurons in the brain transmit information. We don't want those to be replaced, Martinez says, because otherwise we won't remember anything. Hydra could inspire research that allows humans to live healthier lives, for example, by finding ways for our cells to function better as they age, according to Martinez. However, this gut feeling is that humans will never achieve such biological immortality. And in the beginning of this, they mention... What is your definition of immortality? So immediately my brain goes to if we're able to transport either consci- our consciousness or just our the data that's in our brain the memories that are that are in our brain in hippocampus if we were to to figure out how to digitize those and I think you know Elon Musk with Neuralink is definitely trying to go into into this direction where you could download yourself into a computer but what does that mean is it you it depends on if you believe in consciousness being transported as well and it also depends on what what does it mean to be human are we just our memories is there more so if someone were say on their deathbed and they wanted their young their if they wanted their loved ones to have the ability to communicate with them, ask them questions, get their opinions on things. They could download their memories, their, I guess, personality traits, digitize that. Now the person passes away, but that digital imprint of them lives on. Now I've heard people talk about this. Kaku has talked about this. You know, being a futurist, he's always thinking about those things, being a um, theoretical physicist. He thinks about those things, and if we survive long enough as a species on this planet, we will eventually get there, unless there's a major disruption that puts a damper on our progress, our technological progress. We will get there. That will be a question. Person won't be alive, but you'll have there. It'll must be like an avatar that will be on your phone or whatever we have when we get there. Who knows what we'll what kind of device we'll have, or maybe it'll be in our. We'll have contact lenses, or we'll that'll be our computer. We'll be have uh, contact lens, and you know, maybe we'll have holographic things that we see and that we touch, and that's how we we navigate uh, something, an interface like that. But that's just me making a uh, a wild guess about you know, future technology. But this is that is one way to be immortal, is to go down that road. That may be the most logical way to go, according to this article here. The oldest living human on record is Jean Clement from France, who died at the age of 122 in 1997, according to Guinness World Records. In a 2021 study published in the journal Nature Communications, researchers reported that humans may be able to live up to a maximum of between 100 and 150 and 150 years, which the researchers anticipate a complete loss of resilience, the body's ability to recover from things like injury, Or illness. Now, to live beyond this limit, humans would need to stop cells from aging and prevent disease. So, in other words, if you live to be 120 or 150, God forbid you get hurt, you get injured, you get sick. It's going to be very uh, difficult to bounce back from that. Now, humans may be able to live beyond their biological limits with future technological advancements involving nanotechnology, this is the manipulation of materials on a nanoscale, and that is less than 100 nanomil- nanometers, and that's one billionth of a meter, or 400 billionths of an inch, if you can imagine that. Machines as small could travel in the blood and possibly prevent aging by repairing the damaged cells experience over time. Nanotech could also cure certain diseases, including some types of cancer, by removing cancerous cells from the body, according to the University of Melbourne, in Australia. Preventing the human body from aging still isn't enough to achieve immortality. Just ask the Hydra. Even though Hydra don't show signs of aging, the creatures still die. They are eaten by predators such as fish and they and perish if their environment changes too much, such as if their pods ponds freeze in winter. Now humans don't have many predators to contend with, but we are prone to fatal accidents and vulnerable to extreme environmental events. We'll need a sturdier vessel than our current bodies to ensure our survival long into the future. Technology may provide the solution for this. And they talk about uploading the human mind, which I talked about a few minutes ago. Uploading the human mind to a computer. Moving the human mind out of the body would be a significant step on the road to immortality, but... According to Schneider, there's a catch. I don't think that will achieve immortality for you. And that's because I think you'd be creating a digital double. So again, like I said before, it's a copy. It would be a digital download of yourself. It's immortality in a sense, but it isn't necessarily you. Like You're not going to close your eyes, open your eyes, and all of a sudden you're in this digital realm, right? It's more of a copy of you, a representation, an avatar. If we achieve something like that again if i want to know what you think about all this stuff contact me info at scienceanimated.net. email me at that email address and let's get a conversation going or email me through the facebook page the science animated facebook page is facebook.com slash science animated or if you want to tweet me tweet me or twitter.com slash science animated you can find me there i really want to know what you guys think about this would you even care to do this I mean, I think it would be pretty cool if we could upload our mind and then, you know, let's say your great, 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 great grandchildren want to pick your brain about something. They can do that. They can ask you questions and go by your life experience way back here in the year 2021 or, or whatever year it would be uh, that you uploaded that information. But um, interesting to think about, tantalizing to think about it. Now, there's been a lot of talk about gradually replacing parts of the brain with chips. So eventually, one becomes like an artificial intelligence, Snyder said. In other words, slowly transitioning into a cyborg and thinking in chips rather than neurons. But if the human brain is intimately connected to you, then replacing it could mean suicide, she added. The human body appears to have an expiration date, regardless of how it is upgraded or uploaded. Whether humans are still human without their bodies is an open question. Now she goes on, to me, it's not even really an issue about whether you're technically a human being or not, Schneider said. The real issue is whether you're the same self of person. So what really matters here is, what is it to be a conscious being? And when is it that changes in the brain? Change which consciousness, which conscious being you are. In other words, at what point does changing what we can do with our brains change who we are? Now, they're excited by the potential brain and body enhancements of the future and like the idea of ridding ourselves of death by old age, despite some of the reservations. I would love that. Absolutely, absolutely," she said. And I would love to see science and technology cure ailments. Make us smarter. I would love to see that. I would love to see people have the opinion of upgrading their brains with chips. I just want them to understand what's at stake. So as it stands, you can repair... Cells with nanotechnology. If we get to that point, we can transfer eventually, digitize who we are, make a digital copy of our brain, upload it into a a PC or whatever would exist at that point in time so our families could interact with it far into the future. Or you got the old cryogenic way, which is just preserving the body, freezing you. So these are all tantalizing Concepts. I want to I want to know what you think. Contact me at infoscienceanimated.net. At Be safe out there this Halloween. I wish you a very happy Halloween if you celebrate that. If not, enjoy this fall weather. I will see you next month with another brand new episode of the S Factor where we talk all about science. I'm your host, Chuck Chaser, creator of scienceanimated.net. You can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on cruise 92.1 WVLT or anytime at scienceanimated.net and your favorite podcasting service. Just type in the S-Factor and you'll see me there. I want to wish everyone a happy Halloween, happy fall. I'll see you next month right here on the S-Factor. Stay healthy and stay curious. Take care, everybody. You have been listening to The S-Factor, brought to you by scienceanimated.net on Cruising 92.1 WBLT.